Hello and welcome to Small Islands Big Picture, the podcast where we put small islands in focus. I'm Emily Wilkinson, Senior Research Fellow at ODI, Global Affairs Think Tank, and Director of the Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative, the network behind this podcast. And I'm Matt Bishop, an academic at the University of Sheffield in Northern England, and I'm also one of the co-directors of the Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative, or RESI for short. Today, we're focusing on the Multidimensional Vulnerability Index, or MVI. What it is, where it came from, why it matters, and how it can unlock material support to small island developing states, or SIDS. Gaston Brown is the Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda. Earlier this year, he joined us at ODI to explain why, from his point of view, the index is so important. Small island developing states like mine tick all the vulnerability boxes. We are still being asked to achieve the SDGs by 2030 with the millstone, that is the GNI per capita criterion, hanging around our necks. Size matters, volume matters, and a small population and highly specialized economy can, in good times, generate misleading GNI per capita stats. So, yes, under these prevailing circumstances, MVI is absolutely necessary. This index can potentially impact real lives. It can help us to gain the access to the concessional financing that we need to improve our long-term national planning, service debts, by providing debt sustainability and spur the development of insurance and compensation schemes that may be our last hope when the waters rise. So Gaston Brown there setting out really clearly why this issue is so important. And he is leading the charge on the MVI in the run-up to the SIDS conference, which will be held in Antigua and Barbuda next year. So for the next 30 minutes, we'll explain why small islands matter, because what happens to them alters the big picture for all of us. This week, we're focusing on the multidimensional vulnerability index and why it's so important for small island developing states. Before we come to the MVI, we need to talk about vulnerability, the key concept at the heart of the index. And vulnerability is something that is absolutely crucial to SIDS. At its most basic, it means a heightened exposure to exogenous shocks. So SIDS are significantly more exposed to damaging external forces than larger states are. And this can mean a lot of different things for different SIDS, depending on the specific patterns of vulnerability they face. So economic and political vulnerability is sometimes cited as a key factor in the ability of a state to respond to particular hazards, or it can be political in some way and most often we think of vulnerability as being environmental in nature so shocks like volcanic eruptions or hurricanes which can be exceptionally damaging to small islands in a way that they are not for larger states. We're going to hear two island voices now Teresa Mecki who's from Papua New Guinea and a research fellow at the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University but before that Salah Dr George Carter who is one of our other co-directors at RESI George is based in Canberra but is originally from Samoa. As someone from a small Pacific island state, he also recognises that there are other equally important aspects of vulnerability that need to be considered. Fundamental to an island worldview, and this is something that I've been brought up as a Samoan of Kiribati, 
Tuvalu in ancestry, is this island worldview that, as well as these material factors, there are also other areas sort of ecological in terms of environment, that vulnerability of the environment is something that goes against the worldview of someone from the Pacific. So in terms of well-being, there needs to be addressed environment, but also culture. That vulnerability also stems from the inability of a people or a country to practice its culture and share its culture. There also needs to be that balancing. There's not much attention that explores spirituality. And for island peoples, the belief in a higher being, whether it be indigenous gods or the Christianity or it be through Islam, spirituality is a leveler or brings about harmonious thinking. And this is part of all this idea of well-being or relationality. So these are what I see are fundamental to island people and it shapes my worldview and the link to vulnerability. My name is Teresa Mackey. I'm from the highlands of Papua New Guinea, particularly Goroka. When I think of the word vulnerability, I think it means being exposed and having no agency. And as I look in the region, as of late, we've become quite a strategic location that's been contested over. So the, the developmental needs and the priorities of our nation aren't given that much priority because we don't have that much agency as a developing country surviving with the legacy of colonialism and the neo-colonialism of aid. To me, vulnerability is just being exposed and not having any power to say much about it. We have to be very determined in what we want to see in the type of negotiations that we make because we are an independent state and we are signatories to various international deals that we sign. So we really have to own up to that and take ownership of our people and our place. And that sovereignty angle has to come strong when we're negotiating these terms and deals that we enter in with other countries. So like the individual person, when we talk about being vulnerable, I mean, Papua New Guineans are proud people. They have so many resources, so many, so much knowledge at their disposal. It's just sometimes the way that it's managed, it's not done with the people in mind first. So for example, basic health services, bringing a hospital right to the people rather than concentrating all these services in urban locations, bringing development to the people and expanding, starting from where they are so they don't need to migrate to the cities. You know, they can just stay in their villages and the facilities are nearby. So they don't feel as vulnerable because when you migrate, even within the country, you leave your comfort, your home, you're exposed to so many insecurities. You know, the social safety net is not there when you migrate out. You leave that when you leave your home. So that was Theresa Mecki from Papua New Guinea and Resi co-director George Carter there. So we've briefly discussed what vulnerability is. Now we're going to move on to the MVI itself. Yeah, this is our explainer session of the podcast. We're going to be getting into some of the details of what the MVI is all about. But maybe I was just thinking, Matt, as you were probably more involved in this right at the beginning, it'd be good to know a little bit about where it all comes from because it goes back 
a number of years, right? This sort of discussions and thinking about measuring vulnerability for SIDS. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was there at the very beginning. I was about 10 when these debates first began. But essentially, in the 1980s, the late 1980s, the Commonwealth Secretariat in particular took a real interest in these questions, in part, I think, because this coincided with lots of the very smallest small island developing states as we now call them, becoming independent. And previous to that, there'd been lots of questions about whether they were, were viable as independent states. And a whole range of questions started to emerge about, well, they are viable, clearly, but they're also vulnerable. They experience shocks in ways that larger states don't. So from that point onwards, in particular the Commonwealth Secretariat, but also other multilateral institutions, took a real interest in starting to construct indices and conceptualising what they mean by vulnerability in order to be able to better explain the, the distinctive development challenges of SIDS. But this also coincided with a wider debate about what is sometimes called special and differential treatment. So the idea is that poorer countries in the world should receive special and differential treatment on the basis of their relative poverty. So they might not have to liberalise their economies within global trade politics as quickly as, as bigger and richer countries, or they might get other kinds of special treatment, access to concessional finance and aid or whatever it might be. And the vulnerability question was a part of that wider SDT question. Yeah, and I guess we're at a point now where... The UN has taken this on and has set up a a special kind of high-level panel of experts. They're looking to the details now, kind of what indicators are going to be used to measure vulnerability. I was just looking at the website about the MVI and there seems to be like two pillars to it. There's the structural vulnerability, which is what the risk of countries' sustainable development being hindered by external shocks. And then there's something called structural resilience, which is the inherent characteristics of a country to withstand those shocks. And I guess the sort of inverse of that and not having structural resilience is something that is going to be important to measure. And there's some initial results that show you where countries are and how vulnerable they are, which is interesting to look at. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really struck me by looking at what the MVI now is in its sort of latest iteration is that these are structural features. There are things that you know, islands can't really do anything about. So, like, there's an indicator here how much countries experience temperature shocks or heavy rainfall events. Those are all the environmental ones, the ones that I'm really interested in, but they're also indicators around, like, different social issues, like victims of epidemics or conflict-related deaths and, and other economic ones, dependency on food and fuel imports. So, seems to me there may be a little bit of wiggle room but there's not a huge amount that small islands can actually do to kind of change where they are on this scale on how how sort of high up they are on this index yeah does that look quite different from what the commonwealth secretariat were talking about when they started out i think i think there are there are three things to say there so the first one is that that's exactly what vulnerability is it's structural these are structural characteristics you know a a small island that has a volcano can't escape its volcano and that volcano could erupt any time and that shock will cause damage that is disproportionately greater than it would be in a large state where the volcano only reaches so far or a shock that hits tourism an economic shock that hits tourism so tourism shuts down but because the economy in many cases is so over dependent on that single industry the nature of the shock and the scale of the shock is so much greater. So it's really important to remember that vulnerability 
doesn't mean necessarily a lack of development or weakness or poverty. It's sometimes conflated with those things, but it really just means a heightened exposure to a shock. And I think that was the inspiration for the work of Comsec and others. I think where the MVI is a bit different is in this conceptualization of resilience as structural as well. And I think the academic literature on vulnerability would probably not entirely concur with that because the big debate in the academic literature on SIDS has always been, well, vulnerability is structural, but resilience is about agency. It's about building building resilience it's something you do it's not something that is so so a lot of academics I think would be a bit puzzled by that because they would sort of suggest that well resilience is something you can shape and create and change over time and that can obviously have some impact on the extent of your vulnerability because if you build more resilience a shock might not hit quite as hard as it may have done previously but you can't really outgrow your vulnerability because it's a kind of a structural feature and then I guess the third thing just to say is that I think technically some of the criteria that have been used in the multidimensional vulnerability index, specifically because it's a UN initiative that has to correspond to all states in the world, don't necessarily capture the specific features of small island developing state vulnerability. In part, that's because the data for those things isn't available. And partly it's because, you know, a range of compromises have had to be made in a UN process. Yeah. And I guess... You know, given that it is this is focus on on structural vulnerability, there may be the kind of the donors and the financial institutions might have some issues with it as well. But maybe we can we can ask our guest about that in a moment. More the kind of politics of of actually using the MVI. So yeah, do write in if you want to find out more about the MVI. We've got a couple of documents and a report on a on a conversation that we had a few months ago with the group of stakeholders about this MBI, how it's being developed, how it could be applied. Where else can people find out information about it? Well, all of the documentation is available on the United Nations Office of the High Representative for the Least Developed Countries, Landlocked Developing Countries and Small Island Developing States, otherwise known as UNOHRLLS, UNALLS. If you Google UNALLS MVI, It will bring you to the website and you'll see all of the documentation. It's been an exceptionally rigorous process in terms of the documentation that has been produced and all of that work is available. And if you actually Google multidimensional vulnerability index, you will find huge numbers of commentaries and kind of academic pieces and pieces by experts within policy institutions about this, some of which is a bit dry, some of which is perhaps a bit more straightforward to get your head around. So next we have the big picture part of the podcast. Each episode we invite a special guest to take us behind the headlines of a story. Giving us the big picture on the MVI this time around is His Excellency Ambassador Dr. Lutero, who is the permanent representative of Samar to the United Nations. He is also the current chair of the Alliance of Small Island States, AOSIS, and is a key member of the high-level panel on the MVI. We spoke to him in New York to get a sense of how this crucial work is proceeding. Well, thank you very much, Emily. Thank you for the invitation and, you know, having me to share with you perhaps a perspective on the multi-dimensional vulnerability index. Let me say this right from the start. The MVI is not something new in as far as small island development states are concerned. 
It is something that we've been advocating for for the last 32, 33 years. So it's not new to us, but perhaps the fact that the United Nations General Assembly finally agreed to having the issue discussed and thereby appointing a high-level panel to look into the issue and then come back to the General Assembly with recommendation. And I think that gave it the impetus that we have been seeking all these years in terms of another metric beyond the GDP and specifically something that measures our vulnerability as small island developing states. So I think that the the panel was also appointed, not, not from member states, but primarily what they can bring to the terms of reference that was set by the General Assembly. So that, that basically is the context. But then the question is, why do we need an MDI? Maybe I could just ask a, a question. You said that it had taken a long time to get to where we are now. Why do, why do you think it's taken so long? I mean, we were realistic. I, I think when we were start talking about vulnerability, it was very much an issue that was also connected to climate change. And as you know, it's a very similar situation. We've been advocating for climate change for that long as well, over three decades. And yet it is taken this time. And I think also there was perhaps some countries and, and some organizations that were not convinced that this was the right time to perhaps engage in the discussion on the MVI. So things change, and, and while it's taken that long, we're, we're very happy that we finally had that opportunity, Emily. But then, you know, the, the next question really is, why did we feel that an MVI was important? As I said, when you look at small island development states, they're in the front line of multiple crises. And one of the key rationale is that we see the MVI as a tool that will help small island developing states access concessional financing. The other issue was the issue of debt. It's also a sensitive issue. And and some countries are not prepared to make available that information. But one of the, the criteria for the, the panel was that the data must be publicly available so that there is transparency. And as I mentioned earlier on, one of the reasons was related to climate change. And over the last 20 years, in terms of small island development states, the number of disasters have doubled. So you can imagine then the impact on that, on our infrastructure, on our development. As you know, a hurricane in my country or tsunami, which which actually happened, set us back in terms of our own development by 10 years, 15 years. And that becomes even more critical now because after the, the COVID, for example, Emily, we're now faced with a situation where, you know, the sustainable development goals are extremely important because that's our investment in the future. But we're finding that 
we have to make the choice between our SCG obligation, meeting those, or paying our debts. How would you like to see the MDBs use the multidimensional vulnerability index? Like, What would be an ideal outcome, do you think? Well, I, I, I think one of the things is our access to concessional finance. Emily, we're, we're not asking for any sort of free money. If you take the view that we are also the most vulnerable, followed by LDCs, that, that was a simulation that we, we did. Surely, there has to be some sort of allowance and recognition. You know, when we look at the cost of borrowing for us, we pay what? three point something to 5.8. And yet those countries that perhaps can afford those high sort of costs are charged much less. So all, all we're saying is perhaps, I, I don't know whether it's possible to talk about an even playing field in this context, but we want basically to say, well, look, can we have the same sort of access, as, as a, especially during the time of catastrophe, where some of these emergency crises that are happening? Because it's like, you know, for us, we feel like you're running from putting out one fire, and then the next one comes on the other side. And, and you know, a recent example of this, even in one year, Vanuatu was devastated by two cyclones. So, you know, that is not impossible to to happen as well. So, Ambassador Luteru, do you think that donors are receptive to using the multidimensional vulnerability index and its indicators as a way of allocating official development assistance or ODA? Well, I hope so. I hope so. I, I think, you know, in talking to people here, member states and their representative here in New York, <clears throat> There's a strong support for the MDI. I'm not saying that there are no pushback. That's, you know, there is pushback from some countries. But I think the vast majority accept it. However, I think one of the challenges that we have is to understand also the internal workings of government. Here we're dealing with foreign affairs. But I think in some countries, the issue of the MDI is a financial issue. So that is located in Treasury or finance or whichever the department in member states, our partners, that deals with that. So, you know, I can say that there is, you know, excellent support for it. But I think there is that challenge as well that needs to be, you know, looked at and addressed, even with international financial institutions, for example. You know, developed countries primarily on the the governing boards of those institutions. So there has to be, you know, that sort of consistency and understanding between those people as well. Yeah. I mean, you sort of alluded to this, and I, I don't know how comfortable you feel about actually sort of naming particular countries, but you know, there may be countries that feel like they they will lose something if the MBI is is applied kind of across the board and funding decisions. Do you get a sense of what they're 
whether those concerns are, are justified or not? Or what would you say to those countries that have their doubts? That, that's a very sensitive question. But it is a real question. You know, it's a real concern. I, I think if you look at the zero-sum situation, you know, I think some countries feel that there's so much available. And therefore, if you take away, you know, then that means less available for, for others. I, I, I won't say who these countries are, but I think you, you understand that that sort of discussion that's taking place. And this is why we also try to move to the issue of a universal vulnerability index. And that's basically where we, we, we went in as far as this. So we no longer, as you, as you recall, spoke about the SITS multi-dimensional vulnerability index, because that's how it started. But I think the panel recognized that this is also political, you know, the political dimension of, of, of this conversation is also extremely important. And so you're, you're right in, in that sense. And all we're saying here, Emily, as you know, is that for our partners, we're, we're saying, look, can you also take on board the MVI as a complement to the GNI in terms of criteria or decisions that you will make in terms of allocation of your own resources. So not to replace the GNI, certainly a complement to the the GNI. Yeah. And also, I mean, it seems to me that the actual kind of additional finance that SIDS require may not be such a significant amount of money anyway in the grand scheme of things you know there's you know very large levels of development assistance and concessional finance and debt relief and lots of other sort of financing instruments out there kind of at a huge scale really perhaps the needs of SIDS are relatively small in comparison to that. Well I mean if if you look at the number of people involved I mean I'm not sure that that's a good sort of criteria but we're talking about 65 million in total. If you confine it to SITS only, then the amount will not be as high as would otherwise be the case. But, you know, again, we want to put the evidence out there. You know, I, I think that's what the NDI is also doing, is provide data that would allow those who need to take the, the final decision on these issues, make those decisions in an informed manner. Yeah. And as you said, like when you actually look at the data, there are lots of LDCs as well that come out as being highly vulnerable as well as SIDS. And I think that's that's what people would expect to see. I was actually speaking in in Parliament at a, a session with the International Development Committee who were taking oral evidence on the UK's small island developing state strategy. And one of the things I thought was interesting from the parliamentarians was how sympathetic they were to this idea that the SIDS category is a meaningful category and it's not income related, but it's a meaningful category because of the high vulnerability of these countries, but also their contribution to kind of global public goods and the you know the natural resources and the biodiversity so i think it's it's both sides of that that make the category or the grouping special and i think there's there's a lot of sort of sympathy and support towards respecting validating that category and providing the kind of support that that's needed 
No, I, I, I think you're right. We very much welcome that in, in terms of the recognition, because I think it's important for us in terms of, you know, moving forward, looking at our priorities for the next 10 years. At the same time, we also have OECD back AOSIS task force that is looking at, you know, the issue of partnership. So we're all sort of working towards some of these important milestones. Then we move to the COP28. But the MDI is one of those issues that will also be discussed at our regional PREP meetings in Africa, Indian Ocean states, in the Caribbean and in the Pacific. How hopeful are you that the MVI will be adopted by the UN General Assembly? And from your perspective, and I guess that of AOSIS, how important is it that that happens? Well, it's, it's of critical importance to us because, you know, I've, I've said this, that if we miss this opportunity, we might as well say goodbye to the MVI. So we see it as critically important. And I think I'm, I'm very hopeful that it will be endorsed. But I think the, the bigger challenge is really in terms of the implementation. And that's where we continue to work with the IFIs and, of course, our, our development partners. So we're very hopeful the resolution will be endorsed by the General Assembly. And then we need to work very hard. I also had a a meeting with the Secretary General and one of the things he was talking about was to bring together heads of international financial institutions. So if that also comes, whether early next year, in terms of having that discussion, we, we hope that the MDI will be one of the top sort of priority on the list for that summit. Yeah, and it's sometimes it's those sort of bringing together the really important people, smaller conversations, but very focused that can have the best results, really, sometimes more so than the larger sort of more attention grabbing conferences. And, you know, Resi will be there to support and work with you and work with AOSIS. And, you know, we're also going to be convening some expert dialogues this year, including one focused on the MBI, which will help to move the conversation forward on actually implementing the MBI and and what's required. So we're very happy to be working with you on this. Thank you very much. And, you know, thank you for bringing this to the attention of the the wider community. But I think also moving forward, you know, the point that you made, when it comes to some of these disasters that we face as SIDS, it happens to middle-income countries as well as the least developed countries and, and low-income countries, you know, in a similar manner. So they are impacted as well. And, and that's why it's so important for us to have another measure, not just the GNI, but another measure that, that actually, you know, give a fuller picture in terms of the challenges that are faced on a daily basis. We now come to a section called No Stupid Questions. With so much misinformation around, we wanted to give you, our listeners, the opportunity to ask us any questions that you have been pondering around the risks and challenges facing small island developing states. So, Emily, here's a question for you. 
Does a focus on vulnerability and, I guess, thinking about small island developing states through the prism of vulnerability, which is kind of second nature to those of us that work on it, but might not be to others, does this risk pathologizing, perhaps even infantilizing small island developing states? Yeah, I think that is an interesting question. There's probably multiple answers to it. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is how to talk about SIDS as being vulnerable but at the same time this concept of large ocean states and SIDS having these large ocean territories having all these resources all of this biodiversity with all the kind of potential wealth that that can generate and they do and particularly the Pacific Islands you know they have these huge exclusive economic zones so They've got all of this to offer as well. So the question is, you know, how much to focus on vulnerability and how much to focus on all of that kind of natural resource wealth and all the opportunities there. And I think it depends perhaps on the policy arena and who you're talking to as to which of the concepts you might want to emphasise more or how you talk about them in relation to each other. Certainly, um, when it comes to accessing finance, as you know, we discussing and Ambassador Lutero pointed out, you know, there's some real challenges. We probably do need to be talking about these kind of severe vulnerabilities and these devastating scenarios and, you know, all the existential threat that is climate change. And so I think when it comes to really getting the, you know, the donors and the MDBs and all the people with money on board you need to be able to to make that case very very clearly so it's useful yeah agreed I mean I I, as someone who's thought about this particular question for a large part of my career of working on SIDS one of the reasons why some people are so skeptical about small island developing state vulnerability is because by and large, they tend to be doing quite well in development terms, right? So particularly in those countries that are high income or middle income, they tend to have quite high levels of human development. They don't suffer huge amounts of conflict. And in general, they seem to be doing better than developing countries as a whole. Um, and that's certainly true if you measure their GNI per capita, which is the basis on which ODA is, is allocated. But I think the response to that is always that this isn't about just development. I mean, you can have very high levels of development and also very high levels of vulnerability. So Lino Bregulio, who wrote much of the early literature on SIDS vulnerability, called this the Singapore paradox, i.e. Singapore is a country that has a very high level of income, but it has a very high level of vulnerability as well. But I don't actually think it's paradoxical. I think it's it's actually quite plausible that you can, you can be both relatively highly developed, whilst also potentially facing shocks that can really undermine that development to a significant degree overnight and that is what distinguishes for me SIDS. I mean there's a reason why I think the MVI process is happening now um, because as I said earlier this was this is kind of a modern manifestation of uh, earlier attempts to generate special and differential treatment but it's happening now because I think the way climate change is accelerating it seems fairly obvious that SIDS are looking more and more vulnerable today than they even perhaps were 10 years ago. But one of the tensions with the MVI itself, and this is one of the things that I think SIDS are going to have to ponder in their diplomacy in the coming months and years, is that one of the points of the MVI is to try and unlock more development financing for SIDS. But the whole point of development finance is that ultimately you should graduate off of the ODA uh, DAC list. Um, (laughs) 
and yet there's an implicit argument that's being made about SIDS vulnerability, which is that it's that it's structural, and it means that they should always receive some kind of development finance. And it seems to me that those two things are potentially in tension with each other. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, vulnerability is not something that people like to be called, I don't think, anywhere. And it's probably the case that any small island developing state, like an individual, you know, wouldn't like to be kind of pointed out as being particularly vulnerable. But as a concept that's used at the level of the the state and the country in order to sort of highlight some of the characteristics of that country, which are not just about, you know, how much wealth there is at a point in time, I think is, you know, makes it a useful concept. And it's certainly one that SIDS have been, on the whole, happy to use, depicting and describing the condition of small island developing states in relation to all these challenges and all these shocks. It becomes really useful, has has real power and traction. I think that's a, that's a really important point. Many in the academic literature have, have argued this, that, that one of the problems with the vulnerability concept is that it can be disempowering. Essentially, you're, you're, all you're doing is looking at your problems. You're not looking at your strengths. So there was a big movement in the, in the 2000s to argue instead of that small state resilience is what we should be focusing on. Let's not focus on what they can't do. Let's focus on what they can do. Let's focus not just on states themselves as well. Let's focus on what their people do. And, you know, people in many small islands are exceptionally entrepreneurial and innovative. You know, go to any Caribbean country and many of the people you meet will have maybe three or four or five different sources of income as a, as a way of basically coping with the fact that, that a shock could force one of those to dry up at any moment in time the reason people think that the concept of vulnerability is disempowering i think is because again it is too often conflated with other concepts like weakness it doesn't mean weakness it doesn't mean sids are weak it just means that they're more exposed to shocks because of their small size and i think some of the most sophisticated debates in the in the academic literature at least have sort of said we need to just combine these two things we need to see vulnerability and resilience as linked to each other rather than kind of opposites we can we can accept the notion of vulnerability and see that it describes an important structural part of the small state existence but they can also build resilience and they do build resilience too which is why they've been exceptionally successful in many cases in development terms yeah and i guess that's that's a nice example of where reality is a lot more complex than than terms or concepts but certainly not a stupid question and we'll be continuing to touch on this throughout the podcast these these concepts of vulnerability what it means in SIDS where they have resilience and where they have strengths so further information and all the links to all of the issues we've discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes next month on small islands big picture we'll be talking about the special challenges faced by small islands that are also non-sovereign overseas territories sometimes called subnational island jurisdictions with a particular focus on the uk overseas territories the british overseas territories where we look at issues of sovereignty and non-sovereignty questions of autonomy independence and what some see as ongoing neo-colonial links So we want to hear from you, your thoughts on Britain's relationship with its overseas territories or indeed anything else you think we should be covering in the podcast. You can send in your questions and comments to info at odi.org with small islands in the subject line. And of course, rate, subscribe, like and share. 
You have been listening to Small Islands, Big Picture from Resi at ODI.